How many of you were here last week? Let me see your hand if you were here last week. Good. Okay. We started a new series. This is an exciting series for me. I love teaching this way. At City Church, we teach a number of different kind of you know, strategies to get the scripture into our hearts. And one of the ways that we like to teach the Bible is taking a book and studying that book literally verse by verse by verse. And so right now we're studying the book of Philippians. And if you were here last week, you know that I explained that uh, Philippians was written by the apostle Paul, one of the early church leaders. And he wrote it to probably his best friends in ministry, the church of Philippi, which is in modern day Greece and Macedonia. And so he writes this letter while he's uh, in prison in Rome. And And uh, I called last week invitations and introductions. And so there was an introduction to the letter and then also an invitation into a new way of living. And the theme that we're studying this book through, and I believe it's a very biblical theme, is what we're calling the secret life of giants. And what we mean by that is that the Apostle Paul is probably the greatest spiritual giant outside of Jesus in the Christian faith. And so in this particular letter, we get a front row seat to how he thinks, to how he feels, and to how he acts. And so you and I get to gaze upon the secret life of this spiritual giant. So if you have a Bible, go to Philippians chapter 1. If not, it will be on the screen. We're going to cover the next chunk of scripture here. I started in verse 1 and went down to verse 11 last week. I'm going to pick it up in verse 12 and go all the way down to verse 26. Are you ready? Y'all having fun this morning? Because the Holy Spirit's here. He wants to talk to you. So um, get ready. Here we go. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Verse 19, for I know that through your your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage. Now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Verse 21, for to me to live as Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I'll return and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me you may be able to, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Remember when you had to read in school? Gosh, it was so intimidating, wasn't it? it wasn't, the, the font in that Bible is like eight-point font. It's like, don't mess up the word. All right, let's pray. That had nothing to do with my talk. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for this opportunity today as fo- uh, followers of Jesus and as family to gather and to study this passage of Scripture. God, I believe, I'm absolutely and fully convinced that this has direct and specific application to each of our lives. And so I pray that by the grace of God, you would uncover that application for us. God, for the person today that's walked in this room that doesn't even know if they believe about Jesus, what they believe about faith, for that person, I pray that right now you start custom fitting this time for them, for that person that is needs encouragement in the faith, God, that needs an, an encouragement from the Holy Spirit or that hungers to go deeper with you and that already loves you. I pray that this talk would light them on fire in Jesus name. Come, Holy Spirit, we open up our hearts to you today. Amen. You ever been to Foxwoods Casino? That's awkward, right? 
Mohegan Sun? Raise your hand if you play the lot. Don't raise your hand. Maybe you play the lottery. Maybe you play the lottery only when Powerball gets huge. And you say, oh, I'm not really into that. But, you know, when it's like a million dollars, I feel like I just have to buy a ticket and pay the man. You know, gambling, by, uh, by definition, is a game of chance, typically for money, right? A game of chance, typically for some amount of money. It's a pretty big deal in the United States. The revenues for gambling nationwide are about $90 billion plus a year. And uh, I want to be clear, I'm not endorsing gambling. I want to use it as an illustration today. I think it's a bad use of your money, by the way. And I don't encourage you to go and gamble it away. But uh, there is something attractive about gambling for anyone. For those that have really struggled with a gambling addiction and you gave away your house and car. Or for those that just like to go to the slot machines now and then. Or for those that have no interest, you can still, you know, see the intrigue or the interest that comes from gambling. It's this unique blend. Specifically games where you have some skill level needed, right? Like a game of poker or something like that. It's this unique blend of control. I decide what I do. And no control, right? Whatever happens to me happens. These cards just kind of come my way. And so there's this, this blend of skill and luck, right? This collision of what I can control and what I can't control. And so this is appealing because, you know, there's this, this intrigue, this, well, I have some control, but I don't have all control. I kind of have this. Sometimes I feel like I can direct the ship. And other times it's like, man, whatever comes out of the deck next is just going to define me. So what card did you get today? Come on, open up your welcome pack, find your card. What card did you get? Come on, look, 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 look. What card did you get? What card you got today? Everybody should have gotten a card. If you find it, stick it up in the air. Nobody got a joker. Did we pull the jokers? Ah, there you are. Very good. Uh, Let me see your hand if you got an ace. Ace, anybody aces? It's your day today. It's your lucky day. Awesome. Everybody that got an ace, we have a $50 bill for... No, I'm just kidding. We don't. Um, uh, We don't. It's not that lucky. But uh, anybody get a two? Anybody get a two? Awesome. Yeah, lame. You got a two. Awesome. Yeah, so you're, you know, in some way, you know, this totally random. You just walked in and received a welcome pack and got a card in it. And you have now been defined on some level by that card. You've walked in with a specific card and that's the hand that you were dealt today. You know, the interesting thing about gambling is that in the end... The house always wins. Yeah, the house always wins. Well, why do they always win? You know, any gambler says, no, 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 not always. Well, actually, yes, pretty much always. The house always wins. Uh, They built the casino. They pick the games. They have a statistical advantage. And over the long haul, that's why they're rich. And the people that go to the casino generally aren't, right? And so they're rich because they have a statistical advantage that over the long haul, they will win. And what I want you to see is, here is for the house, if you lose, the house wins, right? That's pretty obvious. But if you win... The house wins because oftentimes, more often than not, those who win get addicted to the high of winning and then go back and lose everything they won and then some. And so statistically over history, this is why gambling is such a big business. The house always wins. Now, in Philippians, we get a very intimate portrait of the Apostle Paul and his thinking. And it kind of culminates in this passage that we just read, verses 12 to 26, In this one phrase, and I've been studying this phrase all week, meditating on this phrase, thinking about this phrase. It is a grammatically awkward phrase. It says this, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For to me, I mean, I don't know about that. For to me, 
That's too many weird words in a row. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What's he trying to say there? That phrase gives us an unction or an inkling into Paul's thinking. He's basically saying, hey, listen, this is personal for me. You might have your thoughts, you might have your feelings, but this is something that is intimately personal. So I want to step back for a second and just reflect on the Apostle Paul's story, all right? So just if you know it, stay with me. It's a fun story to think about. And if you don't know it, you'll learn a little bit. The Apostle Paul was not originally known as Paul. He was known as, anybody know? Yeah, Saul, very good. Saul of Tarsus, right? And so he was a devout Jew from Tarsus. He went to the best schools, the Yale or the Harvard or whatever it is that he went to. He, you know, those are the schools that he went to. And, uh, you know, he was the top of his, you know, uh, class. He was a Pharisee, which in the Jewish tradition was the most strict religious class of the day. And so he was well known. He was well respected. And when Jesus showed up on the scene, Saul of Tarsus was appalled by this heretical teaching. In fact, he saw Christianity as an affront to everything he held dear and everything he loved. And so he took it upon himself to shut the mouths of Christians. Okay. And so Paul, the scripture describes it as this. He was ravaging. That's such an offensive word, isn't it? Ravaging the church. That was literally what this guy was doing. He was entering into homes, finding people who were Christians, dragging them out in the streets, beating them, arresting them and trying to get them executed. This is what Saul of Tarsus was doing doing with his time. And he did it out of a religious zeal to protect the faith of his fathers. Now, just imagine the mental images that are built in this guy's mind over the years that he's doing this. You're seeing little kids screaming as mom is getting whipped in the street and dragged off into some prison, never to see her kid again. And you're walking there and watching the whole thing as the little kid stares at you in the face. Imagine all the mental images that this individual, Saul of Tarsus, had going on inside his head. Now, interestingly enough, this wasn't enough for this guy. It wasn't enough just to arrest the Christians in Jerusalem. This thing became for him an obsession. I have to extinguish every hint of Christianity in every part of the world. And so he actually goes to the chief priest of the day and he tries to get legal documentation to allow him to go to the outskirts of Jerusalem and beyond and begin arresting Christians there. He's on his way to Damascus. And as he's on his way to Damascus, Saul of Tarsus has an encounter with Jesus. Maybe you've read the story before. He encounters Jesus in a supernatural way. He's blinded for three days. He's humble, he's broken, and he realizes that Jesus Christ truly is the Messiah and the Savior of the world. And in one moment's time, Saul of Tarsus gets a panoramic view of all of his wickedness. Just think about that for a second. Think about what he was feeling when he realized that he had actually been fighting against the God that he was called to serve. Think about the moment when Saul realized all these people that I threw in prison and had executed were actually the people following God, not disobeying God. Imagine the regret. Imagine the shame when he would look at the lives of those who he destroyed and say, I did that. I mean, you've probably had some failed relationships. Maybe you've messed up with drugs. Maybe you've made some real stupid mistakes. But I don't think you've thrown a ton of Christians in jail after beating them and then getting them executed. I don't think you've done that too often. Maybe you have. But in this place, check this out. In this place of brokenness and shame and guilt, complete exposure before God, Saul of Tarsus experiences Grace. 
grace. Love I don't deserve. The complete forgiveness of all of my sins. From the day I was born to the day I died, Christ has already redeemed me of all of my sins. Of all of my sins. Completely and absolutely pardoned. Grace. He changes his name from Saul of Tarsus, which was the name of the first king of Israel, Saul. He changes his name to Paul, which means little, small. He changes his name because he says, I have completely changed who I am. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. This story blows my mind. It just causes me to think and feel things that I don't even fully understand. But as I think about this story, as I feel this story, as I sense the dramatic transition, I realize that the Apostle Paul, when he says this, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, he's actually showing us that he has discovered a no-lose scenario. He's discovered a scenario where he is no longer subject to any type of long-term loss. The message translation, read it with me says it like this alive i'm christ's messenger dead i'm christ's bounty life versus even more life i can't lose see i'm not saying that god is a crooked casino owner but what i'm saying is that in the long run in eternity the apostle paul realized that the house always wins and that i have an invitation to actually embrace and engage jesus did I get that screen up? The thing on the screen? Alive. Throw it up there again. Alive, I'm Christ's messenger. Dead, I'm his bounty. Life versus even more life. I can't lose. I can't lose. I win if I live because I've served Christ. I win if I die because I see Christ. Christ has removed all of my sin. And because he's removed all of my sin, he's secured for me eternal life with God. Because he's secured for me eternal life with God, I'm accepted before God. Am I? identity is found in God. My future is secure in God. Every aspect of who I am is found in him. So how crucial is it? Stay with me at this point that I have a perfect job. How crucial is it that I make the right amount of money? How crucial is it that I have the right car? How crucial is it that I never suffer with sickness in light of this reality that for eternity, Christ has permanently adopted me and transformed me? Does it not shift the way everything else in life looks? In other words, what he's saying is I have discovered, follow this because this will change your life. I have discovered something ultimate, something beyond life. Something beyond death. I have found something that's greater than life. Someone who's greater than death. Something has been introduced into the equation. And Paul whispers this secret to us today. If I have Jesus, I have everything. If I have Jesus, I have everything. If I have Jesus... I have everything. The paradigm in which Paul worked from was that if he had Jesus, he had everything. In light of what Jesus had accomplished for him, he saw every other trial as what the scripture calls momentary light affliction. He was so consumed with what Christ had accomplished for eternity. And this actually makes sense, by the way. If you think about the little struggles you have, maybe you have the most difficult life in the entire world. The little struggles you have may last 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 years, and yet Christ has permanently for eternity, 100 billion years from now, secured a position with you in heaven with himself. In light of that reality, if I actually believe that's true, then I can say with confidence that if I have Jesus, I have everything. 
If I have Jesus, I have everything. Turn to the person next to you. Tell them, if I have Jesus, I have everything. Come on, you can tell them. It's fun. If I have Jesus, I have everything. Here's what I'm saying this morning. Here's what I'm saying. This is really important. It doesn't matter what card you were dealt today. It doesn't matter what card you were dealt today. You may have walked in with a jack. You may have walked in with an ace. You may have walked in with a three. It doesn't matter what card you were dealt today, regardless of the card that you've been dealt in life. If you have Jesus, you have everything. Hold on, Justin. Hold on. I'm lonely. I'm scared. I'm afraid. I'm struggling with this. I lost my job. I have this frustration. I have this struggle. Those things are real. And guess what? The loving father in heaven cares about every one of those little things. He cares about them, but he also in the midst of caring about them and wanting you and wanting to provide for you in them. He also wants to let you zoom out, see a broader view, see a bigger picture, catch a glimpse of what's actually real and realize if I have Jesus, I have everything. 1984, an individual, I'm going to mess up the pronunciation of his name, Medhi Dijab, was arrested by the Iranian government for converting from Islam to Christianity. He's arrested, he's thrown in prison, 10 years without a trial. After 10 years, he's finally tried and he's sentenced to execution, to death, because he converted to Christianity. At his actual trial, he writes a letter and it's read there. And this is the end of the letter. This is how he ended the letter. After 10 years in prison, simply for converting to Christianity, he said this. Jesus Christ is our Savior, and He's the Son of God. To know Him means to know eternal life. I, a useless sinner, have believed in His beloved person and all His words and miracles recorded in the gospel, and I've committed my life into His hands. Life for me is an opportunity to serve Him, and death is a better better opportunity to be with Christ. Therefore, I'm not only satisfied to be in prison for the honor of His holy name, but I am ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus, my Lord. That's a perspective, friends, that you and I often miss when we're frustrated about the grass that didn't grow in the backyard and the sewer guy that didn't come on time to fix my plumbing and the boss that just keeps annoying me with those things where they change the schedule and they don't tell me ahead of time and all the things that consume our thoughts were introduced to a much bigger way of thinking about life. By the way, through international pressure, this individual was released from prison after 10 years. Freed. Seven months later, he was murdered in a park. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The Apostle Paul believed this. He actually believed this. It informed the way he lived. This individual, this Iranian Christian, he believed this. He gave his life for it. They believed it because it's true. And they believed it because it was right. If I have Jesus, I actually have everything. I want to quickly show you five implications, five implications of this value system. In other words, if you apply this value system, some of the things that you could begin to do, because the Apostle Paul shows us this value system in the scripture. Look at verse 12 with me where we started. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened, this is so good, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ, okay? What has happened to me? Well, if you know the story of Paul, a lot has happened to him. He's been beaten, he's been thrown in prison, he's been 
unjustly tried. He's been all types of stuff. He got bit by a snake, shipwrecked a couple times, all types of chaos. Finally, now he's in Rome under 24 hour surveillance. Okay. How would you feel if you were unjustly thrown in a prison, 24 hour surveillance? What would your attitude be toward this circumstance by 24 hour surveillance? I mean, he's got a chain around his wrist that chains him to a Roman guard, right? The Imperial guard, as a matter of fact, that's, that's, uh, Caesar's top guards in Rome. And so he's now chained to one of these guys. They do four hour shifts. That's what history teaches us. Four hour shifts. These guys come and go and come and go. And our perspective very often would be crud. This stinks. I don't want to do this. I don't want to be here. God, what happened? God, where are you? Was that Paul's perspective? Somehow this individual was able to see things differently. And he said, wow, the most influential guards in the entire world are getting tied to me for four hour shifts. Maybe this is God's strategy. And one by one by one, he starts leading these guys to Jesus. See, he realized if I have Jesus, I have everything. And because of that, I can, implication number one, turn my problem into my pulpit. Tell somebody that's good. Come on, turn my, come on. I thought about that for a long time, that little analogy. You should appreciate that stuff. Turn my problem into my pulpit. In other words, you know what? I could complain about this. I could whine about this. But maybe what God is looking to do is take that loss of a job. Maybe what God is looking to do is take that past shame. I'm going to get personal. Maybe what God is looking to do is to take that miscarriage. Maybe what God is looking to do is take that past addiction. Maybe what God is looking to do is to take that broken family and instead of of me complaining about it instead of me being frustrated with God about it. Maybe this is my opportunity to take that stinking thing and say, it's a mess. It hurts. I'm frustrated. I'm sad, but I'm going to actually make it a pulpit where I declare the goodness and the grace of God in spite of this reality and see this thing become the place, the place of hurt become the place of ministry. You look at your life. Yeah, you can clap about that. You look at your life. Look at your life. And I would almost guarantee that the places where you've struggled, where you've failed, where you've been frustrated, and when you've been hurt, those become the most fruitful places that you can minister out of. You turn your problem into your pulpit. Because if I have Jesus, I have everything. Wow, this is, this is so good. And verse 14, and most of the brothers having become conf- confident, that's confident, not confined, in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So the brothers now are getting bold, right? They're getting courageous. Did you ever realize that it only takes one person? This is a huge idea. It only takes one person to change the entire dynamic of a room towards courage. Did you ever notice that? Years ago, I was uh, on a missions trip with a youth group in West Virginia. I was probably 16 years old. And I had gotten into uh, a little habit of jumping off of bridges into water. It was just a fun thing that stupid teenagers do. And so we were doing that again and again and again. And we were in this canoe going down a river in West Virginia on our day off on this mission trip. And as we're going down this river, there's about 20 of us in different canoes going down this river. We approach this huge bridge. Okay, huge, like 750 feet high. Right. And so we maybe not quite that high, but it felt that high to me. So we're going down the river and we see it and we think to ourselves, we'd been jumping off bridges all day, finding other bridges to jump off. None nearly this high. And we looked at it and we said, oh, crud, we should maybe jump off this bridge. But I was terrified. I didn't want to jump off the bridge. This one kid, he was like 14 years old, jumps out of the canoe, swims to the side, runs up the side, gets through oncoming traffic and jumps off the bridge. And we're all like, is he dead? No. He's alive. 
Well, I guess we have to do it now. And so me and a couple bunch of my friends climb up there and jumped off the bridge. And then we bragged about it to all our friends. But the point is that you are inspired just by one person that has courage, that has boldness. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul's describing. Or he's saying, hey, listen, I was courageous. I didn't shrink in the, in the midst of all this pain and struggling and torture and all the things I'm dealing with. I'm still courageous for God. And because of that, everyone else that loves Jesus is now infected with courage. See, if Jesus to me is everything. And if I have Jesus, I have everything. Therefore, second implication, I can infect others with courage. I can infect others with courage. You know, some of you just need to be infected with courage. Some of you just need to be infected with courage. You already know what God wants you to do. You're just terrified to do it. That's for somebody today, not in the notes. You need to be infected with courage. A couple years ago, I went through a really, really dark time in my life, really struggled and uh, struggling with anxiety, fear, all these things. I was getting all these physical symptoms. I've shared it with it before. You can review every podcast and try to find it. But I know I've talked about it at some point. And, uh, you know, I was at a place where I really felt like, you know, I wouldn't say it out loud, but I felt like I was dying. I felt like there was something wrong with me, like some internal weirdness going on that I was going to die. And it was just kind of playing around in my head. And I I knew it wasn't true, but it was still battling. And finally, it just took my father-in-law to just say to me over the phone, Justin, You're not going to die. And I was like, oh, yeah. All right. I'll stop being a wuss. You're right. I just needed somebody to infect me with courage. Listen, you're here today. You might just need someone to infect you with courage today. You already know what God wants you to do. You just have to have the courage to do it. See, when you believe that if I have Jesus, I have everything, you have the opportunity to infect others. With courage. Let's look at verse 15. Stay with me. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now, you've got to get a couple things under, uh, under, understood here if you want to really understand this passage. Verse 15 to 18 shows us that these guys that are preaching Christ out of rivalry, they're not heretics. Okay, they're not preaching a false gospel. The Apostle Paul deals with people preaching a false gospel in other parts of the text and in other letters. Those aren't these people. These guys are Christians and they're actually preaching the gospel. Okay, they're Christians preaching the gospel. The problem is that their motive was to compete with Paul. They wanted to have a bigger thing than Paul did. They wanted to have a cooler church. They wanted to have a bigger church. They wanted to compete with another person who was also preaching the gospel. Thank goodness this never happens in our day and age. What's Paul's response to this? I love it. He says, well, listen, if I have Jesus, I have everything. I don't need to, I don't need to compete. Therefore, I can celebrate brothers who are trying to compete with me. That was the third implication, by the way. I can celebrate brothers who are trying to compete with me. You know, on Thursday night, I was at a, uh, a unified gathering over at Kingdom Life Church in Milford. Multiple churches represented for the um, National Day of Prayer. Hundreds of people worshiping together today. Um, by the way, you're invited. The New Haven Green, there will be a gathering. I think it starts at 2 o'clock. I'm sharing at, I think, 4.30. And uh, our worship team's playing some music there at 4.15. Numerous churches, all from New Haven, coming together on the green to worship Jesus, cry out to God, and declare his lordship over our city. Friends, there's a new day dawning right now. The day of competing against one another within churches is dying in the least church region in the United States. 
And a new day is rising. A new day where Christians say, you know what? Maybe we're called to complete one another, not compete with one another. Friend, I want to be part of that crew. I want to be part of that crew. Sometimes relationships get sticky. Sometimes things get frustrating. And I want you to know here at City Church, we're not going to always do it perfect, but we're going to be committed to walking through the process and humbly seeking to prefer our brothers every single time. And if you say, you know, I don't really like your church. I'm going somewhere else. We say, awesome. We love you. Go. But be faithful there. Don't be grumpy there. Be faithful there. And serve there passionately. Verse 19. He says, yes, and I will rejoice at the end of verse 18. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, I've already given you three, got two more. This will turn out for my deliverance. And it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed for that with full courage, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life and my, or by death. Wait a second. Is, is that not an awkward passage for you? Does anyone else read that and go, what? Wait a minute. Hold on a second. Hold on. Once phrase, Paul says, I'm going to be delivered. And the next thing is, I might die. Hold on a second. Which one is it, Paul? Are you going to be delivered or are you going to get executed? Well, I'm going to be delivered, but I might be executed too. Well, how does this work? How can you be confident in your deliverance and also aware of the fact that you might die and be fine with that? What kind of faith is that? Well, if you were with us for our Contend With Me series, we actually looked at this in detail. That faith, you remember this? Faith in God is never, anybody remember? Wasted. It's never wasted. In other words, what God wants you to do is he wants you to contend for the deliverance. But if you don't see it, he wants you to be confident even in death. In other words, if I live, I serve Jesus. If I die, well, then I can't get any closer to Jesus. Either way, the house always wins. The fourth implication here is that I expect deliverance and smile at death. I expect deliverance and I smile at death. In other words, Paul's saying, I expect to be set free from this prison so I can go serve with you and accomplish the work God has me to accomplish. But if I don't experience the deliverance, that's not so bad. Either way, I win. Either way, I win. Because my faith was never wasted. If I pray and contend to be free from this prison and I die, God will reward me in eternity for that faith. That changes everything. But if I have Jesus... I already have. Yeah, that was your chance to say everything. I can preach a lot longer if you don't catch this. If I have Jesus, I already have everything. everything. I already have everything. Yes. Verse 22. You okay so far? Okay, verse 22. I skipped verse 21 because this is the essence of the whole passage. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Verse 22. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, which yet, yet which I shall choose, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. See, if I have Jesus, I have everything. It enables me to turn my problem into my pulpit. It enables me to infect others with courage. It enables me to celebrate brothers even when they compete against me. It enables me to expect deliverance and smile at death. But because for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, I am satisfied in him and I can, fifth implication, put the needs of others above my wants. Paul's saying, listen, honestly, 
I see this so clearly. I'm ready to give my life for Christ. I'm ready to die. But I know God has called me to consistent, fruitful labor. And so I'm continuing to contend for that freedom from this prison so that I can satisfy your needs, meet your needs above my wants. Look at me just for a second. I don't know what card you were dealt today when you walked in. I don't know what card you've been dealt with in life. Maybe family. You feel like, why is my family all messed up and other people's isn't? And I had to deal with that early on. Why did my father die? Why did my mother leave? Why did this situation happen? Why did that job opportunity fall apart? Why did that relationship buckle? I don't know what cards you've been dealt. But here's what I do know. That if you have Jesus, you have everything. If you have Jesus, you have everything. If you have Jesus, you have everything. See, whatever card you have, Jesus is the card you need. Question for you, what card do you need today? Maybe you need to know Jesus as a savior. You need him to forgive your sin because you feel guilty before God. You need to know permanently and forever that you're accepted before God. Is that you today? Maybe you need to know Jesus as a friend because you're pretty stinking lonely. Maybe you need to know Jesus as your substitute because you realize that um, you've messed up way too many times. And in natural senses, you don't think God would ever forgive you. It's a good thing he's supernatural. Maybe you uh, need to know Jesus as your comforter because you've experienced some significant loss. You know, sometimes people ask me, we do a lot of counseling here at the church, and sometimes people ask me, well, how do, how do, you, how do you deal with this loss or that loss? And often I just say, you know, Sometimes it's just about inviting Jesus into that loss. Like, hey, Jesus, would you be with me right now? Would you, I want to invite you into my loss because I don't know what to do or what to say, but it would be better if I did this with you. Maybe you need a comforter. Maybe you need freedom. Maybe you need a husband. Maybe you need a father. Maybe you need a brother. Last week, I, uh, I was in Minnesota. Some of you guys know Ed Downing. He was, um, helped us launch the Bridgeport location, pastor that location for the first three months, and then moved to D.C., take a job with International Justice Mission. And um, I don't miss too many Sundays, but Ed's wedding was Sunday afternoon. He asked me to marry them, and, uh, and so I, I prayed about it and decided that it was a go. So I was in, um, in Minnesota last Sunday, and I'm still fascinated by airplanes. I've been on like a billion airplanes. But there's something that's just so fascinating to me about the fact that we can take this little chunk of metal, throw it 35,000 feet in the air, and get somewhere really fast and not crash. Like, it's just amazing to me. There's just something incredible. You ever been on an airplane before? If you have, well, then you know what I'm talking about. You look out the window, you know, and um, maybe, maybe it's just me, but when I look out the window at an airplane, you look down from 35,000 feet, and all the chaos looks organized doesn't it? You ever experienced this? You look down, you're like, everything looks so clean and organized because you can't see the trash on the street. Can't see the prostitutes on the curb. You can't see that. You can just see above it, right? Did you ever notice that everything looks slower up there? You get up there and like the, the, the buses don't seem to be moving as fast. The buildings don't seem to be quite as chaotic and busy. Everything seems just a little bit more organized, a little bit slower. Even a big city, when you look at it from 35,000 feet, it just doesn't look that big anymore. It just doesn't look quite as big. 
anymore. This is Paul's invitation to 35,000 feet. That's what this is. He's saying, hey, if you would come with me, you could live your life stressed out about your bills and stressed out about your life, you know, this and that. You could live your life frustrated about all those things. That's possible. But you also have an invitation to live on a higher plane. An invitation to realize that truly in life, if I have Jesus, stand your feet with me. So look at me just for a second this morning. I want you to hear these words. I gave my life to Christ as a, as a teenage kid. Experienced his grace. And in those days in the youth group, there was a particular song that was quite popular. If you've been around church for any length of time, maybe you know it. But I want you right now just to close your eyes. We're not going to sing it today. We're going to sing something else. But I wanted to say these words to you. Because as I was praying through this passage and looking at this passage again and again, this song kept on resonating in my spirit. I think it's going to resonate in yours too. It says, you are my strength when I am weak. You are the treasure that I seek. You are my all in all. I'm seeking you as a precious jewel. Lord, to give up, I'd be a fool. You are my all in all. Taking my sin, my cross, and my shame. Rising again, I bless your name. You are my all in all. For when I fall down, you pick me up. When I am dry, you fill my cup. You are my all in all. Jesus, Lamb of God, worthy is your name. Jesus, Lamb of God, worthy is your name. What's stressing you out right now? What's stressing you out right now? What's causing that depression, that fear, that worry? Paul's saying to you 2,000 years ago, but more importantly, the Spirit of Jesus is saying to you right now, hey, if you have Jesus, you have everything. Because the house always wins. Whatever card you need, that's the card I got. Whatever lack you have, in the end, always, I will provide. If God is using this ministry in your life, we would love to hear from you. Email us at mystory@ourcitychurch.org. For more information about the church, visit www.ourcitychurch.org.